from Australia to Canada to Spain. We're on the move in this episode of Victorian Samplings. Hello, I'm Vanessa Warren. We begin this episode with a conversation with Veronica Alfano about a book bound in kangaroo hide. We welcome Christine Olson to explore Victorian-era depictions of the Alhambra, and we learn from Alison Fizard about a carved wooden altar that made its way from Britain to a tiny rural church in the Canadian prairies. Please stay with us. Victorian samplers. I'm Jesse Cron, and I'm speaking today with Veronica Alfano, a research fellow in the discipline of literature at Macquarie University. Veronica is the author of The Lyric in Victorian Memory, Poetic Remembering and Forgetting from Tennyson to Houseman. She also leads the Poetry Caucus of the North American Victorian Studies Association. Veronica will be telling me about a very special collection of the works of the medieval poet Geoffrey Chaucer, that was published in the 19th century. So, Veronica, did you want to start off by giving us some of the background of the Kelmscott Chaucer? Sure, I would love to. So, the Kelmscott Press was founded in 1891 by William Morris, along with Emery Walker. And as many of your listeners will know, Morris was a poet and novelist and artist and designer, political activist and more. He was also interested in book design, uh, and he did not necessarily appreciate the aesthetic of some more mass-produced 19th century books. So along with Walker, he founds the Kelmscott Press, which, to simplify it, blends 19th century and 15th century approaches. So each Kelmscott book represents just a massive amount of skilled labor. Morris designed the fonts. He also designed ornamented initials, capital letters, and uh, elaborate borders for the books. The uh, paper was handmade. The ink was specially chosen and imported. There were sometimes illustrations by the Paraphialite artist Edward Byrne-Jones. And of course, they were using a hand press. So just a a huge amount of labor here. Uh, I believe that Kelmscott only published 53 books, and the Kelmscott version of the complete works of Geoffrey Chaucer is generally considered to be the the crowning achievement of the press. So this book took about four years to complete. It appeared in 1896. It ran to only 425 copies, has 87 Byrne-Jones illustrations and its own typeface created by Morris. So it's a real treasure. In fact, it's been called a pocket cathedral. So that's the, the background on the Kelmscott Chaucer itself. Could you expand a little bit for us on Morris's opposition to mass production? Was it his sympathies for the laborers involved in the process, or was it that he felt mass reproductions lacked integrity? Yes, yeah, so a couple of things. He believed that mass-produced objects were less beautiful, um, wouldn't last as well. And not only were they less beautiful, they also did not represent a vital connection of the worker to the object produced. So exactly as you're saying, 
Um, he believed that having your work kind of mediated by a machine was, was dehumanizing and that you should have, uh, there should be some kind of connection between you as a, a craftsperson, as a, as a laborer and the object you're producing. You should be able to put some of yourself into it. So if you're just kind of, as he would have seen it, grinding away in a factory, you don't have a, there's no expression of your own pleasure in that labor. It's not meaningful to you. Um, so he wanted to connect the books he produced to the meaningful, informed labor of skilled individuals. Some of the Kelmscott Chaucers, that is the ones that Morris and his team produced, were in fact originally sold with an embellished pigskin binding. But most of them were in fact very simply bound in linen or vellum. And often that was with the understanding that purchasers would be the ones to design custom covers for them. And that did happen a great deal. And that's exactly what happened with the copy I am interested in that I've been examining with my colleague at Macquarie, the medievalist Louise Darson. And this is a copy of the Kelmscott Chaucer that was acquired by the State Library of New South Wales, and specifically the Mitchell Library, in 1921, so just about 100 years ago. They paid 150 pounds for it. And immediately on its acquisition, the resident bookbinder, Frank Hayner, made it a beautiful custom binding of kangaroo hide. And it's that material choice that we're particularly fascinated by. So I think on the, on the face of it, it does seem odd to have a late 19th century kind of medievally influenced book of Chaucer's works that's then transplanted and covered in this material that seems very rooted in a different place, a different set of cultural traditions. But what I'm thinking of, or what I'm uh, calling the Australianization of the Chaucer, and of course I'm not the first to use that word, but this process of transforming it or attempting to transform it into a, an Australian cultural artifact both taps into a larger pattern of Australian nostalgia for Victorian England, maybe for an idealized version of medieval England, but also I think sheds light on Morris's own processes at the Kelmscott Press. Um, so it's interesting to note that the Kelmscott Press itself, as I think I mentioned, hybridized the medieval and the modern. So rebinding the Chaucer in kangaroo protects it, but also transforms it. So preserves it and turns it into something else. Um, pays homage to Morris's devotion to individual craft, but also seems to reread it or reframe it as an Australian artifact. But again, that kind of simultaneous preserving and transforming to me is a very Kelmscott technique really illuminates the Kelmscott Press's approach to medieval authenticity. So Morris always has to reimagine the past in order to understand it and preserve it. 
And you can see that in the techniques associated with Kelmscott itself. So on the one hand, there was a kind of strict authenticity that Morris and his collaborators were devoted to in producing the Chaucer. So just for example, they didn't modernize the spelling and Burne Jones often strove to avoid overt anachronism in its illustrations. Morris's font is in a medieval style, but at the same time, and I'm not the first to point this out, even as he's devoted to traditional crafting techniques, and even as he tends to have a suspicion of modern technology, Morris is also using, for instance, cutting edge photographic methods to design his typefaces. So there's a sense in which a kangaroo bound Chaucer might seem to be merely a novelty or anomaly or a curiosity, but I think it also elucidates a fundamental part of the philosophy of the Count Scott Press. So nostalgia is a strategy that allows us to make the past useful or significant in the present. That's, that's one way of thinking of it. And both Morris and Hayner are, in a sense, quite literally repackaging an aspect of the past to make it useful, relevant, beautiful in the present. There's a quotation from Morris where he says, when you are using an old story, read it through, then shut the book and write it in your own way, which is something I was thinking of a lot when looking at this, uh, this volume. So because nostalgia involves interpretation, for Morris, is the reader's representation of the work they engage with as valid as what we might think of as an anachronism-free version of Chaucer? Yeah, so you might say that to completely and faithfully re-inhabit the past is not possible. Any kind of perspective on remembrance of repurposing of the past is, is always going to be an interpretation. So this particular form of nostalgia allows us to use it. And I think interesting question maybe is, what is the precise form that nostalgia is taking? What are we focusing on? What are we choosing to leave out? What are we eliding? Um, I think it's easy to see nostalgia as something that's merely passive, sentimental, escapist, even enervating. But for Morris, I think it also is a ideological standpoint that arms him with very particular political goals. It can be paradoxically future-oriented as well. So the, the, the precise nature of the nostalgia is interesting. I'd like to pick up on this notion that nostalgia is active. Is there any relationship between the kangaroo rebinding and nation-building projects? Is there something notable about Chaucer being put in alignment with an icon like the kangaroo? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I think it's important to highlight that, of course, Aboriginal cultures in Australia are incredibly ancient and complex, deep-rooted and rich. But in contrast to that, European settlers, colonizers can at times feel that they are young and rootless in their own culture in Australia, as if they are isolated from founding myths and cultural traditions. 
So exactly as you're saying, acquiring or collecting these sorts of objects that are weighted with history can feel like a kind of belated or retrospective construction of a cultural tradition. So a kind of uh, transplanting or translation of the past. And I do think that that connects to what I was saying before about how Morris's Victorian version of the Chaucer volume is its own form of ideological repackaging that perhaps provides a precedent for Hainer's act of rebinding. So they're really fascinating ways in which they illuminate each other, the Kelmscott edition and then the kangaroo covering of it. We might think of the production of print media with regards to the inanimate material that is refined into the composite parts of a published work. Is there anything that you can say about animal bodies being extracted and repurposed into these collector's objects, like the pig skin or the kangaroo skin? That's a great question, and, and one that I yeah, would love to think more about. Morris is also very nostalgic for nature. Um, a lot of his nostalgia is aimed at a kind of lost pastoral English ideal that has been corrupted by factories and overproduction and industrialization. Um, I think that is relevant in the Australian context as well. There's a really interesting book by Andrew Montana about the influence of Morris and others in Australia, where he talks about the practice of using forms that are connected specifically to Australian flora and fauna. So then the question becomes, yeah, in a city like Sydney, which is growing and expanding rapidly, how might nostalgia for nature, um, for rural Australia, have interacted with nostalgia, both for Victorian England and again for this idealized version of medieval England. What sorts of authenticity are at stake there? Um, so yeah, the, the question about animal bodies in particular, is this ironically a kind of nostalgia for the natural, the authentic natural that has a deleterious effect on the environment. Um, my colleague, Louise Darsan, who I mentioned before, is also concerned with placing that kangaroo binding within the longer history of its use by indigenous Australians um, and what it might mean for that material to now be on this icon of Anglophone culture I think there's some really fascinating connections there. Thank you so much for the talk, Veronica. You explained things so beautifully, and it was so interesting to hear from you. Thank you. My name is Anne Hung, and today I am joined by Christine Olson. Christine is a PhD candidate in the history of art at Yale University, 
specializing in 19th century British design and material culture, with a focus on intersections between Victorian arts manufacturers and histories of collecting, interior decorating, printing, and the book. Thank you for joining us, Christine. And thank you so much for having me. Your research engages with the works and theories of 19th century architect and designer Owen Jones. What first inspired you to focus on Jones? My interest in Jones came through sort of three channels that I didn't necessarily at the time realize were going to intersect. The first was that I had been studying Islamic art history and became really interested in the 19th century as a period of sort of exchange under conditions of colonialism, where European goods were going into places like the Ottoman Empire and affecting artistic developments there. And also Europeans were collecting goods from Middle East and, and South Asia, and that was inspiring developments of design there. And so I became interested in histories of Islamic art collecting and the way that Islamic art objects were circulating in European contexts. So that was one way that I came into Jones because of this collecting history. The second was that I was interested in the way that those Islamic art collections were displayed historically not just brought together. And a lot of them were displayed in private contexts. So I was curious about like the interior spaces where these collections were shown. And a lot of them were these kind of Orientalist rooms. So things like Moorish smoking rooms, quote unquote, or a Turkish parlor or these kind of fantasy spaces. And so I was interested in how actual collection objects were being paired with things like Orientalist looking sofas that were made by Western manufacturers and designers, and how those two things were interacting with each other. So that was the second way that I came into Jones, because he was a figure of the design reform, who's especially known for introducing kind of Orientalist modes into modern design. And then the third way was through just museum studies and museum histories. So I was interested in histories of the museum as an institution. So I imagine that like I kind of like backed into Jones from many directions and he just kept being there at the center of all of these questions. So that was what motivated me to take him up as a sort of subject in my own research. And I felt like not only was he a figure that brought all of these areas that seem like they might not be related into dialogue with each other in a kind of scholarly context, he made it very clear that you couldn't think about something like how Islamic art objects came into museums without thinking about like the taste for textiles and wallpapers, because he was doing both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that through Jones, we can talk about commercial wallpaper patterns in the same breath we talk about museum studies. One of Jones's most fascinating works is a representation of the Alhambra. Could you describe the significance of this palace and maybe explain what makes it such an interesting subject of artistic representation? Yeah, so it's a very complicated monument. Architecturally, it's not just a sort of single building. It's a it's basically a palatial city. So after the Napoleonic Wars, travelers actually began visiting the Alhambra as a kind of off the beaten path, like tourist site. And it was a sort of, quote unquote, exotic addition to the Grand Tour. So artists started going, um, writers started going, they started to be like travel guides and things like that. So that's where like my story with the Alhambra really begins. So Jones was one of these people he visited in the 1830s um, at the end of his grand tour when he was training as an architect. And he was among a sort of generation of people that were documenting it. One of the things that really stuck out to early visitors was 
the abundance of surface decoration. So one of the, the most sort of striking architectural features for a lot of people um, is that there is just intricate and elaborate decoration all over the walls. So there's low relief stucco work everywhere. There's sort of bands of Arabic calligraphy. There's botanical designs. There's very intricate like geometrical designs. There's also these colorful ceramic mosaic tiles. So there's kind of patterns as far as the eye can see in some of the spaces of the Alhambra. And it's just a very captivating space. It's just beautiful. But it also has this history of reception by European and American artists that's very uh, wrapped up in kind of larger constructions of Orientalism. So because it's because of its Islamic history and because it was recognized as a sort of monument of Islamic history in Spain. And so it, it was this place of kind of exoticizing appeal. And then as it became more and more well known, more people started visiting and then it became sort of established as a kind of canonical monument within histories of Islamic art and architecture later on. Jones's depiction of the Alhambra in his 1839 work, uh, Plans, Elevations, Sections, and Details of the Alhambra, uses a form of multicolor printing known as chromolithography. For those unfamiliar, could you describe the process of chromolithography? Chromolithography is printing lithographs in color, as the name suggests, but you can only do this through a, like a kind of layered process. So first, an image has to be divided into each color that it contains. So if you have an image with three colors, you make three stones, one for each color. And then each of those stones gets printed onto the same piece of paper in succession. And then as those colors are applied, you get a full color image. It's a complicated process, both because the kind of mental gymnastics you have to do in order to parse an image in that way is difficult to wrap your mind around and technically difficult, but also the process of printing itself, you have to register each of those impressions separately. You know, each time you print it, you have to make sure that everything is lining up so that the colors show up in the right place and you end up with a like a legible image at the end. So Jones, when he used chromolithography, that it was a relatively new medium. And he used it because he was very invested in conveying an understanding of what he understood to be the original polychromy of the Alhambra. When he visited, it was mostly not colored except for the tile mosaics, but there were fragments of paint in the low relief stucco, which led him to believe that the whole thing had been painted. And this was a time and there were a lot of debates going on in the British like architectural establishment at this time about historical polychromy and especially ancient Greek polychromy. This was when they were starting to realize that like, hey, maybe these temples were painted and not just white. Um, so he was part of those debates and he was sort of applying that logic to this Islamic monument, which was a new thing to kind of think about. So he produced these color plates in his work plans of the Alhambra in order to argue for the idea that it had been originally colored. And also he was deriving sort of theories about color from his study of the Alhambra. In plans of the Alhambra, he actually had a really hard time with this color printing because it was such a new medium. And he had tried to commission a lithography firm to do it for him and was really dissatisfied with the results. So he took the kind of crazy step of setting up a chromolithographic press and studio inside his house, hiring a bunch of assistants and producing the plates himself. And so the whole thing took almost a decade to produce and cost a ton of money. So it was this kind of a crazy venture, but it ended up being like a landmark work in early chromolithography and was a really like innovative process at the time. 
Your research also touches on the fascinating connections between Jones's strict architectural depiction of the Alhambra in his 1839 work and a more interpretive illustrative version in Ancient Spanish Ballads published in 1841. Would you expand on this connection for our listeners? Yeah, so while Jones was publishing the plates of plans of the Alhambra, which as I said, took like almost 10 years, he also was taking commissions for commercial publications, specifically for ornamental design. So he really established himself early on, not only as a designer who was like more than just an architect, and also not only as somebody who is interested in the Alhambra, his nickname was Alhambra Jones. So he sort of had this reputation very early on, but also as somebody who was specifically interested in designing for ornament, like the idea of ornament as something that designers should focus on and as a kind of like category of design practice. But early on, this mostly took the form of ornament in print. So ancient Spanish ballads is an example of these commissions that he was taking. It was a what is known as a gift book. It was a publication that had been published much earlier in 1824, but was reissued leading up to Christmas in 1841 as this kind of like luxury book. So these gift books were meant for, as the name suggests, they were meant as gifts. So they're sort of like lavish productions with really beautiful bindings and lots of illustrations, lots of color, later on especially lots of color, high quality letterpress. And they weren't cheap. I mean, I think ancient Spanish ballads when it came out cost the equivalent of like what we might think of today is like a hundred and hundred and fifty dollars, something like that. So definitely like was a sort of lavish object. So Jones's contribution to this book was ornament and it, he designed quote unquote illuminated headers, title pages, initials, borders, frames, things like this. And a lot of his designs for that book are based on ornamental details from the Alhambra. And many of them were details that he had already been publishing in the context of the architectural treatise in plans of the Alhambra, but then sort of shifts and mutates into these new kind of what we would call graphic designs, basically. So a lot of them, if you know the Alhambra and are familiar with the sort of motifs that you would expect to find in the Alhambra, they're recognizable, but they're not illustrations of the Alhambra in a sort of conventional sense. He'll do things like he'll pick out one little scroll, like botanical scroll motif, and then wrap it around into a circle to make like a picture frame for an illustration. Some of the um, pages for that, he actually chromolithographed himself using his chromolithographic press. So I do think that there's also a kind of an economic side to this story, which is just simply that it cost him so much to produce the plates of plans of the Alhambra that he was sort of recouping some of his expenses and like putting his chromolithographic efforts to commercial use because he could. And then I think one one last thing to just mention about this is there also starts to be a kind of taxonomic function of ornament within this book. So in addition to being like a place where you could sort of encounter the Alhambra without really understanding that that was what was happening, these ornamental designs also organized themselves within the book into sections. There were sections of quote unquote Moorish poems, which were poems that either originated in or were set in the Islamic dynasties of medieval Spain. And then the poems that were set in Spanish Christendom were called romantic poems. So these are divisions within the book. And Jones adapted his ornamental designs accordingly. So the designs for the Moorish poems feature Alhambra elements. And the designs for the romantic poems are actually based on medieval European Christian illuminated manuscripts. So 
he's sort of using ornament as a way to distinguish between art historical styles or historical periods or cultural contexts in a way that really anticipates what would happen in the grammar of ornament, which was this kind of like encyclopedic project of documenting like different global and historical pattern styles taxonomically from antiquity all the way through to like modernity. So there's like a lot of different ways of thinking about the adaptation of the Alhambra within this book. It's sort of like, what did it mean there? But also just visually and materially what happened, like what were the transformations that he enacted um, in order to make these designs? And those are some of the things that I look at in my research. It's such an interesting field of research and an interesting figure that you found. I wanted to thank you on behalf of Crafting Communities for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, listeners. This has been Yale's Christine Olson on Owen Jones and Representations of the Alhambra. For resources related to this topic, please visit craftingcommunities.net. again, listeners. It's Anne Hung, and I am rejoining you to share a conversation I had with Allison Fizzard. Allison is an associate professor of history at Campion College, Regina. Her research focuses on late medieval monasticism and medieval revival art and architecture in Canada and the UK. We're going to be talking about a late 19th century altar located at St. Thomas's Mission Church in Vernon, Saskatchewan. I began by asking Allison to describe this object and tell us about her interest in it. Here is what she shared. Thank you for having me, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. I actually have a personal connection to the the church where it's located. My husband is a farmer who comes from a farming family from that area. And this is the church that the family has attended for a very long time, well, since its founding. <laughs> so when I got to know him, got to know the family, I got to know the church as well. I was really struck quite early on by this amazing altar and the painting above the altar. And yeah, as someone who had an interest in late medieval art and architecture and also medieval revival, art and architecture in the 19th century. I'm like, huh, like this is really unusual for a tiny little country church, like really out in the middle of farmer's fields. How did they end up with this amazingly, like lavishly carved oak altar and the painting above it is almost like pre-Raphaelite style. And, you know, I've been to other little Anglican churches out in the Saskatchewan countryside, and like I've never seen anything like this. So it was like, what is the story here? And being kind of sucked into the world of this little church, it also fell to me as the academic to write grant applications for repairs to, to the church. And so that was when I started doing the research a few years ago. My husband's uncle and his mother had co-written with other people this history of the area in which they alluded to the fact that the altar had been carved by an English woman who had a studio in Stratford-upon-Avon. And 
the painting had been done by a relative who was another English woman. And that was about it. And so I started digging and digging and it's just like down the rabbit hole and was able to find so much information that just kind of blew my mind that it ended up here in Saskatchewan. So it really has been an amazing journey trying to learn more about the story of how these artifacts came to be where they are and how that's connected with an influx of settlers directly from the UK in the period of the 1890s. It's so interesting that you have such personal connections to the provenance of this object and where it is now. As interesting as the object itself were the people involved in its creation, could you tell us a bit more about the carver Valentine Elliot and the other women involved in carving this altar? Yeah, so Valentine Elliot was a professional woman woodcarver and teacher of woodcarving in England in the last 20 years of the 19th century. So we really don't know a whole lot about uh, how she came to learn wood carving. We know she was born in 1850. Her family background was gentry status. Her father was a relatively well-off lawyer in England. And then she ended up marrying an Anglican priest. And so she had the role of vicar's wife and all the duties that that entailed. She was also having a large family. She had eight known pregnancies, uh, seven children lived to adulthood. At the same time, she was a savvy businesswoman, a promoter of her work. She had this vision of not just carving work in the historical revival styles of kind of like Tudor revival, Stuart revival, and, and selling those objects. She also wanted to help teach women, especially, you know, middle class women who were daughters of Anglican clergy who were maybe not doing very well financially, giving them an opportunity to learn a trade. So wood carving, as I learned, was an, a common hobby for middle class and upper class women in England in the later 19th century. And so these hobbyists needed to be taught by instructors. So she was teaching women to be instructors of wood carving and also potentially makers of carvings that could be sold. And she promoted her work through advertisements, but also through participation in international exhibitions. So there were two big international exhibitions, one in Edinburgh in 1886, one in Glasgow in 1888. And she got news coverage related to participating in these exhibitions and talking about teaching these, you know, middle-class women from Anglican clergy families, you know, how to become uh, proficient woodcarvers themselves. She got a lot of good publicity from the sale in 1886 of a walnut table to Queen Victoria. And so it was like for the rest of her career, she was just, you know, mentioning that in advertisements or she got it into, you know, newspaper coverage. You know, I sold this table to Queen Victoria. And then in 1888, 
Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Louise, who was an artist herself, she bought a replica table, it seems, of the one that her mother bought from Valentine Elliot. So, yeah, so royal patronage is also an important thing here. And she was also, in the 1890s, trying to get involved in new trades instruction in her locale. Like There was this movement towards what they called county council crafts and trades instruction. She tried as a woman to get employed to do that. And there was some resistance to having a woman teaching things like carpentry. So that didn't go very far for too long. And her connection with Canada is just, again, kind of random. So her oldest son came out to this area as a British settler at the age of 17. He wanted to learn how to be a rich farmer is what the claim was by his sister. He didn't seem to be very proficient at it. And Valentine Elliot said, okay, I need a daughter to go out and tend to the oldest son. <laughs> Keep house for him. And maybe you can find a little maid to help you out. <laughs> the first daughter said, no way. The second daughter said, okay. And traveled by herself all the way out here. And so the two of them became involved in that little parish, setting up this little Anglican church uh, out in the middle of farmer's fields. So the mother said, oh, I'll donate this carved wooden altar and this beautiful painting done by our, our cousin Alice. And she made the trek out and was present for the consecration of the altar in that little church. Yeah, it's so fascinating that this one figure ties together issues of craftsmanship entrepreneurship, gender, instruction, class, and colonial relations as well, because of course the colonial context is present here. You've been researching this altar and you know in your work on it that the notions of correctness in religious art, architecture, and rituals help settlers to maintain their view of themselves as upholders and preservers of British cultural traditions in a colonial context. How does viewing the altar through this lens of tradition change how we study and understand it? It's interesting. I think in general, the study of the material culture of British imperialism and colonialism has been somewhat understudied that, you know, there's been a lot of work on, say, architectural history of, say, Canada and, and other colonial contexts where people look at how the architecture very much spoke to examples of, you know, medieval architecture back in England and very much emphasizing continuity there. But there hasn't been as much attention paid to the artwork within these churches, the work of crafts that might have been imported from, from Britain, and the role of the overall context. So you see these ideas of if we create the correct sort of, of church that looks as it should be, with the art as it should be, and the rituals being as they should be, like back in England, that we will be bringing this, this culture to this colony. And as much as we can 
support the continuities, the connections, you know, we are doing what we feel we ought to be doing. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's so much going on in terms of linking the material culture of Anglicanism and imperialism and British colonialism in this area that takes some looking at and and seeing how all these things come together, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you for helping us look at this church, which has this fascinating object in it and these ties to this extraordinary maker. You've been a joy to talk to today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Anne. It's, it's been just a delight. Thank you to Veronica Alfano, Christine Olson, and Alison Bizard for their contributions to this episode. Together, they invite us to think about the movement of objects, of people, and of ideas across great distances and between cultures, both in the 19th century and in our own moment. This podcast is the co-creation of Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, Lucy Von Schilling, and me, Vanessa Warren. We do our work on the territory of the Lungkwangan and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Learn more about the Crafting Communities Project by visiting craftingcommunities.net or by following us on Instagram at crafty underscore Victorians. You can email us at craftyvictorians at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. The Crafting Communities Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. Crafting Communities is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening.